Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. You know, when you get tired of banging your head against the wall trying to break into an industry, create the industry and make the world try to break into you. And if you don't stop and actually create the vision as your compass, as your target, you're going to journey regardless, but you might be journeying without clarity of direction. The goal was to fulfill my mission for my life and my purpose, which is to help to create and pioneer a more commercially viable industry for the art of spoken word. For young poets to be able to tell their parent, I want to be a spoken word poet when I grow up. And that parent hears possibility. They don't hear, you know, you want to be homeless. They hear, oh, I know where this can go. Go, go, go. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Siku Andrews. Siku Andrews. Okay. So, Siku is a spoken word poet. Why did I want a spoken word poet on the show, you ask? Because I wanted to give you guys different references for creativity. So, you have lots of different ways, lots of different tools in your arsenal to be able to create whatever it is that you're working on. And in this episode, we talk about what it's like to perform in front of Maya Angelou, Oprah Winfrey, and Barack Obama, all at the same time in Oprah's backyard. What is it like to be nominated for a Grammy for spoken word? This episode was one of the my most favorite episodes I've done this year because it's so different, it's so unique. It's such a different way of thinking about creativity. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Siku Andrews. Sheku Andrews, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Good, good to be here, Rob. So, you know, it's interesting because when I heard about poetry, I thought of, you know, some classes I took in college, 
or maybe um, some books that I've read here and there, but I've never seen anybody do what it is that you do. So I am super excited to talk about this because one of the things that we do on the show is we give people lots of different ways to experience life. And one of those I believe is the spoken word. So we're going to dig into all of that, but I think a great place to start with you would be to talk about where you came from and touch on your mom and touch on your dad for a second. Um, let's, let's start with your dad. Your dad was a doctor. In what ways do you think that what you do now is influenced, was influenced by him? So dad, dad wasn't a doctor. Dad was a professor. Mom, mom has her PhD, so she's officially a doctor, but neither of them are medical doctors, just to be clear. Ah, I read doctor. I didn't, I didn't know. Okay. So they, so they have their doctorates. Right. Mom has the doctorate and dad, um, both of them were, were professors, but you know, it's interesting because I, I always say like, I really am the apple leaning right up against the tree in so many ways. You know, both of my parents were, were educators, college professors. Both of them were artists. My mom was a dancer, choreographer. My, my father was a painter, sculptor, visual artist. And both of them were entrepreneurs. You know, they both, my mom had the first African dance company in the, in the uh, Bay Area. My, my, my dad had a had a museum dedicated to um, to black Olympic athletes. He was an Olympic athlete himself. What did he What did he compete in? He was a long, uh, broad jump, long jump and broad jump. Actually, yeah. Interesting. Yeah so, yeah. so both of them were, you know, all of this, all three of these found their way into me, and I very much am living at that intersection. If you think about my work, it really is the intersection of of education, of artistry, and of entrepreneurship. Uh, and so, if we're starting with my dad, his influence was heavily in support of my art, always encouraging me to, to think differently. The other thing to note, um, especially as it relates to entrepreneurs and, and innovators, is that both of my parents were like Ber classic Berkeley radicals, <laughs> you know, uh, like I was a Berkeley baby. Right. So my parents were, you know, my parents were, were black revolutionaries. You know, they were, my mom was being hit on by Huey Newton. My, they were, they were a part of Kwanzaa ceremonies when it was just the founder and 12 people in a living room. And they had us, they had us going to school, unafraid to be ourselves, to wear a daishiki, to, to, to be proud of who we were. My mom shaved her head when I was young, you know, to, to sort of represent her, her pride with African culture. Now that's sexy. Back in the seventies, look, Weird. Well, it's crazy. I couldn't win a clowning contest because anytime in, in elementary school, when somebody was like, you know, you, somebody gave me a good clown and I'm giving one back and they'd be like, that's why your mama's bald headed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so like, I had to really, really grow up respecting how to be yourself authentically, how to own your power. And I think that showed up in what it is that I do now as an artist. And my father was a, was a, a pinnacle, uh, uh, you know, example and influence of that as was my mother. So do you, you know, one of the, a lot of people will argue that, you know, you don't need to go to college today. You can Google anything, but uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of arguments to be made around it. And I'd love your take on this. I would assume based on what I just heard that they taught you how to think your parents taught you how to think. And that when you're, when you have two professors that are not just, you know, professors for 
I don't know, a local community college, but in Berkeley at that time, your way of looking at the world, the lens to which you see things is so completely different. Did you, are you married now? I am. Yeah. Okay. Did you, and do you have children? Uh, Just have one celebrating her first birthday uh, this Sunday. Congratulations. I got a little girl. She's six years old. Um, So do you believe that, did you find in your wife, the similar sort of critical thinking, you know, revolutionary way thinking sort of woman, or is she different? She's different, but has the core. She, she's different in the sense that she wasn't, raised in the same sort of, you know, Afrocentric Berkeley pro, you know, the, the, at the heart of all protests in America in, in the same way that I was. But she's similar in the sense that she has the artistry and the entrepreneurship and the education. Um, you know, she was a, a makeup artist. She does decor. Uh, she worked in the entertainment industry for years. She created her own business. Um, now she does events and decor and design. So she has the same sort of creativity aspect. She has the same entrepreneurship aspect. And she has the same sort of independent create yourself. Everyone said you can't do this, but to hell with everyone kind of mentality. So I love that. That's where we find our synergy, even though we come from two different experiences growing up. Now, are your parents still alive? Uh, my mother is. She'll be flying in later on today to meet her granddaughter for the first time. So, oh I'm my that. god! <laughs> How exciting! Yeah, yeah. And my father uh, passed right before I graduated from college. Unfortunately, about about a month or two before I graduated from college. Okay, and your mom, for lack of a better word, is she still weird? <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Wait, I mean that with nothing but love. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. I, You know, here, here's the thing. Thinking differently comes with its consequences. You know of what I mean? Like you get, out, so, you get out of the box, you're out of the absolutely, box. Absolutely. So there are things that like, you know, some of the ways even that my mom, I mean, that my wife and I have bumped heads when she and my mom are having that classic, uh, you know, wife, mother pissing war, right. That, that happens. And I have to remind, you know, she's like, well, she's difficult with this and this can be difficult. And I have to remind her like, yeah, but that's, who put that into me, the person that you fell in love with because of those things, right? Mm. She instilled that that innovation. She instilled that ability to think differently, to go against the grain, all of those things. And so that you don't just turn that off. Of course, it becomes a bit more amplified when you start in your 70s. (laughs) But, you know, but it's, uh, you know, it's that same that same sort of create yourself and in the face of whatever else, uh, whatever anyone else is saying that you, you can do that's who made me. And I, and I have to honor and respect that. You know, I always joke that my mom was at the forefront of everything that's sexy now. So we were doing yoga in, you know, in our home and teaching yoga before yoga was everywhere. Right. I grew up um, a vegetarian before vegetarian was sexy. I, everything that's sort of like, oh, cutting edge and everyone's adopted now. My mom was at the forefront of saying this is the right thing to do. And the world was going, no, no, no. That's who made me. And I have to honor and respect that. She must be having a, 
a hell of a time now with what our political climate is going through, what the oh, vaccines are going like. She must be like all. I, all I can tell you is this weekend is going to be very interesting at your house. <laughs> <laughs> Never a more prophetic statement has been uttered. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I want to pick up around 1998. You were working as a as a, as an elementary school teacher in L.A. Can you tell me more about that portion of your story? Yeah. Um, so I, I wasn't intending to be a teacher. Um, I was actually intending to be a lawyer. I graduated from Pitcher College out here in Claremont, California, sociology degree, pre-law, started working in law firms, wholeheartedly expected to go become an entertainment lawyer if I didn't make it as an entertainer, right? Yep. Um, law was going to be my backup. <laughs> and... <laughs> And uh, as I started working in multiple law firms in L.A., you quickly, re- quickly realized that law, law ain't a backup. Law is a commitment. You know, the loans, the time, the the uh, the just the, the overall dedication to it. And I was looking at lawyers and going like, yeah, I'm looking at the hours that they work and how hard it is. And I'm like, you've got to really either love the law or just love money to, to do this. And I don't particularly just love the law and I want to make money, but I want to do it at something that I love doing. And so I started to move away from that. And I also said, I want, I really want to do entertainment and I, and I don't want to be that entertainment attorney that's negotiating a record deal that I kind of secretly wish I had, you know? Yep. <laughs> you know? So I was just like, let me go ahead and try entertainment. And I was, I'd fallen in love with um, acting and I'd fallen in love with music, with hip hop in particular um, in middle school and pursued it through high school and college. And so I thought, okay, let me let me see how I can actually start giving this a real shot. And so I stopped working in law firms. I decided to do teaching, substitute teaching, which was my kind of actor waiter job. You know what I mean? Yep, like you, yep, yep. you've got the flexibility to to for actors is to go on auditions, and for musicians, it's to go on the world tour that I know is just waiting around the corner for me, right? Yep. yep. And, uh, and so I started doing substitute teaching. Rob, I vowed to myself that I would not become a full time teacher because I knew I'd love it. I knew I'd be good at it but I knew it ultimately wasn't what I wanted to do. And because I loved working with the kids, I ended up breaking that vow about a year later. And I took on a full-time teaching position, fifth grade in Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles. Uh, It was exactly what I thought. I loved it. I was good at it, but I knew that ultimately it wasn't what I wanted to do. And as good of a teacher as I was, those kids need your 100% dedication, you know? And especially when you're dealing with underprivileged schools. And so I I just found myself going, I can't be chasing entertainment at night. I can't be doing poetry venues and performing in shows like they need my undivided attention. And so I thought better for me to step away and and allow a teacher who can give that attention than to keep straddling this, you know. Um, And so after about four years, I decided to uh, quit because during that four years, is when I thought that I was going to open mics and doing shows to build a fan base for my hip hop music so that I could go get a record deal and become a hip hop artist. But accidentally during that four years, I sort of accidentally fell in love with spoken word poetry. Mm, Interesting. And so so suddenly now it was like, well, damn, I'm actually excited about this, but there's an industry over here, but there's no pathway or industry. I don't know how, what to do with this poetry thing over here, but there's something that's actually, I've always been kind of half artist, half entrepreneur. The entrepreneur in me was starting to get excited about the answer to that question, which is, well, go make it, go make the industry. And if, if, there, if there's no industry, instead of being tossed into the sea of demos and headshots over here and everybody competing for the same crumbs. 
And, you know, so I always feel like, you know, one of my one of my favorite uh, uh, quotes to give people is if you, you know, when you get tired of banging your head against against the wall, trying to break into an industry, create the industry and make the world try to break into you. And that's what I, I decided. love that. So you, you know? created you created a category that yeah. didn't really exist. You noticed that there that there wasn't a match or a commercial career path that was very lucrative uh, for poets. Yeah. So you created one. You know, we all have these hockey stick moments in our business career. And it seems like one of yours in this category was when you connected uh, with Nike to do a Nike campaign. Can you tell me more about that and how that relationship sort of put you on the map? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Nike was one of my first clients and that's an amazing first client to have. I had quit my job. I had decided to do poetry full time, try to figure Mm -hmm. out what that was. It's it's challenging because there isn't a trajectory, typically a long trajectory, not a sustainable trajectory for a spoken word poet, right? You typically start off doing clubs and show uh, clubs and cafes, and you're selling your merchandise. You're hoping you make your rent. Those start off locally. They go national. Maybe they go international, and then maybe you start doing colleges where the checks get bigger. Audiences might get better. They might get suckier, but at least you walked home with a uh, with a check. And then that's kind of it, you know. Then you kind of either stay doing that. Or you stop and you go get a job or you publish or you teach or or you take your your skills as a wordsmith and you apply them to something else, songwriting for someone or writing for a TV show or something like that. And I just felt like that's that's a shame. So I, I, I found myself really trying to figure out how can I kick open doors for spoken word poets where we get to stay on the stage, just like comedians can, just like dancers or actors can. And I looked and Nike uh, sort of provided one of those first opportunities where where. I had done an MTV film called Battlegrounds for a line of streetball clothing called uh, Battlegrounds that Nike had. And I narrated this film, a film that was all about sort of the theme of of war and these different streetballers battling against each other for king of the court. And I narrated with these uh, with these poems about war. Nike brought me to the campus uh, headquarters and said, hey, we want you to do one of those poems live for our audience. And it was cool because, you know, tennis got up there and did their traditional presentation and then. And the football got up there and did their traditional PowerPoint slides and everything. And then it was Battleground's turn. And I suddenly jumped up from the audience or right up behind the audience. And I was like, I bought soldiers. And everybody was like, whoa, you know, and I did this, this three minute piece that blew everyone away. And Nike was thrilled and the light bulb went off. And I was like, here, here's sort of an untapped, uncharted terrain that I can start to move spoken word into, but in a way that it can be monetized. And this is just one of the frontiers that I'll tackle. Uh, But it took a long time because the business world had, just like everyone else, they had their perception of what spoken word is and it belongs at some, you know, cafe or club or whatever. So it took a while for me to establish the business values. Initially, it was, hey, go write a basketball poem or go write a little football poem or come perform at a holiday party. And that's how businesses were approaching spoken word. You don't belong at the senior leadership meeting, but you belong at the Christmas party. And I had to keep pushing um, and changing the perception and the perceived value of our art form to say you're wrong. Spoken word has an incredible density to be able to hold business information and deliver it in a human way. And that will rock your senior leadership meeting. You just got to give me the chance. Eventually, I did Nike's analyst meeting, um, which is obviously one of their most important high value meetings. And the and the analysts were cheering and Nike was like, wow, that's never happened before. Light bulb went off for Nike. 
suddenly now I'm getting called in for brand meetings and finance meetings and PR meetings. And that really began my trajectory with creating what uh, the speaking category that I call poetic voice that you alluded to. This is so interesting. I, um, I want to ask you a question about this. That's that I'm going to fumble through the question. So just bear with me. I'll fumble through I, the answer just to make you feel better. <laughs> I like writing and a lot of people who listen to the show, they're either entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things they do is they'll make a, uh, they'll write a vision for what they want their life to look like and three years or five years. And then maybe it'll be followed by a vision board or something like that. And about right around the time that COVID started, I decided that I wanted to write what I wanted my life to look like because, you know, being locked down, I was thinking about different things. Mm -hmm. And I saw myself in Italy and I saw myself walking down the cobblestone streets and listening to the church bells ringing and blah, blah, blah. And so Mm -hmm. I started writing this and I said, okay, well, I'm going to let that sit. I got a beautiful vision of what I want. And it was sort of poetic to me Uh in a way. Mm -hmm. And I woke up the next morning and I looked at it and I was like, no, that's the wrong word. No, that's the wrong word. And I started just changing it. I did that. I shit you not for about a month until I didn't have any other words I wanted to change. Fast forward, my house is in boxes now, and in ten days we're moving to Florence, Italy. And and that was how long ago? Right when COVID started. That was COVID. Wow. So, yeah, my question for you is: You've mentioned wordsmith. Obviously, words matter. Where? And I don't even know if there is an answer to this, but where do those words come from and how important is it for you to toil over the right word in the right moment in the right time? Well, you're talking to a poet, so I know that's all we do is toil over the right word in the right moment. We, (laughs) to our own detriment, sometimes we will agonize over whether it should be yellow or canary, and we just, (laughs) you know, it's like. (laughs) I mean, we will look up, and the whole the whole project will be like, you know, past this deadline, and we're still going canary yellow, you know. So <laughs> you got me there. That answer is absolutely yes. Well, you uh, answered it. That's what it yeah. is. You, you're I mean, trying I, to, you're agonizing I, over, maybe the question is why? Why is that? Because important? words carry power. And, and, and that, that, can, that can be used as a, you know, uh, uh, inspirational quote for a poster behind your desk type of thing where it's just a throwaway. But if you really, really understand it and you really pay attention to it, words carry Power, like the word, whether, whether, think about this, instead of thinking about it like this sort of uh, maybe uh, the, the secret law of attraction type of way, which some people might sort of dismiss as frou-frou, think about the development of your child, right? I'm in that right now. And I'm literally getting all the research and the science and the data learning about how, I mean, this is what I live, words carry power, and yet I'm learning about it in a completely different way as it relates to the development of my one-year-old and watching how something that was said to her or something that was delivered in Justin, even when she can't fully speak yet, and all we got is a mama and a dada and a dada and a dada, which I love, um, <laughs> that that you begin to recognize the the the, the neural programming 
that's happening with her, right? And the rewiring and the firing of her synapses and all that stuff that is literally creating her world from the words that we use, the tonality that we use, not just what we say, but how we say it, right? Or think about it from the perspective of the words you tell yourself. How many times have you given yourself a limiting belief that you then lived into? How many times have you literally said, I can't do this. This is too hard. This is not going to happen. I'm afraid you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not mighty enough to be able to do this. And then you have allowed that to become your box, your silo, your your barrier or boundary that you live into until you realize I need to change the words I'm telling myself. So if that applies to you inside of your own brain, what makes you think that that doesn't apply to the external world? And that's why you have to be very conscious of the words that you're using. You don't have to agonize about canary versus yellow. You can leave that to the poets, but you do have to be very conscious um, of the of the words that you're using and the power that they carry. Yeah, think about Nike's three words. Just do it. Yeah, and especially when you're talking about a vision statement, because look, as much as we know, there's so much more that we don't know about how all of this cosmos works, right? And so we can sit back and go, oh, I do a vision board and I, you know, I'm just doing it for fun and it seems like this thing. But you don't recognize in the same way that it's happening with my daughter and the same way that it's happening with your program, you don't recognize all of the ways that you might subconsciously, incrementally be be leading yourself to the vision that you put on your board or the vision that you put on that piece of paper. And if you don't stop and actually create the vision, as your compass, as your target, then you might, you're going to journey regardless, but you might be journeying without uh, clarity of direction. Yeah, for sure. I want to read something to you. Indulge me. And I want to get your, uh, your take on it. Okay. Yeah. As we stepped onto the stage, there was a long table filled with iconic faces from Congressman Andrew Young to Sonia Sanchez <laughs> front and center less than 12 feet away from us was Maya Angelou with her chair turned around to face us directly behind her was Oprah Winfrey. We began our set and much to my horror about two minutes into my poem. When I grow up, I started to see Maya looking around frowning, stomping her cane. And I immediately started to freak out and thinking, Oh shit, I'm boring Maya Angelou. After a few more lines, however, I noticed that each stomp of her cane was accompanied by her shouting, yes, and looking around at her friends like, did you hear that? Yes. Suddenly, my freak out turned into swagger as I thought, oh, shit, I'm rocking Maya Angelou. For the rest of our 13 minutes set, we had the whole room lit with cheers and tears. At one point, I remember looking at the table to see Maya stomping and nudging the person next to her while Oprah was behind her, clenching hands of the two people beside her and leaning forward with her mouth open and tears trickling down her cheeks. I thought in that moment, yep, I can die now. As we reached the culminating last line of our poem, because I will spit. Maya shouted spit with us as she jumped to her feet with her cane. She was caught by the gentleman beside her who assisted her scurry over to give us huge bear hugs 
before Oprah came over and held my face in her tear-soaked hands and whispered the most heartfelt thank you I ever heard. You know anything about that guy? <laughs> You're not going to make me cry, Rob. You're not going to make me cry. Oh, I did. I did. I, I was doing research, and I literally walked into the kitchen. I was like, put your, put your, uh, put your eggs down for a second, honey. I got to read something to you. I didn't get through it without crying. I was... I was, I, I was praying that I did this interview where I wasn't going to cry in front of you. And I, I did good. All I can say to you is what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That truly was one of those, like, you know, I can die now moments. I, I, it's, and I love that you do your research. Cause it's like, I can't even remember. Like, I know those were my words that I wrote. And I'm like, I can't even remember. Right. Well, listen, but you know that you've gone to the moon when you're performing for people like Barack Obama in the back of Oprah's yards. So your mother had such an impact on your life. Yeah. And, you know, look, clearly, I don't know what the hell it's like to be black. And I certainly don't know what it's like to be a black professor in Berkeley. And I don't know what it's like at that time. But I can certainly imagine that your mother would have said that she did something right when Barack, Maya, and Oprah are all together listening to yeah. her son. How, like, like, how do you feel when you hear that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's on multiple levels for me because I've always had the personal artistic side of it, right? I'm an artist. You want your work to resonate. You want to inspire people. You want to move people. You want to connect. Um, and you want to you want to be well received. You know, you want applause, you want record sales, whatever it is. So to have my work honored and respected by such luminaries uh, personally was just like, oh, my God, like, like I said, I can, I can die now to be the, the other context that wasn't given in that part of the story was that I was performing with my partner, Steve Connell and I. And we one of our dear friends and mentors and leaders is, is Norman Lear TV, you know, legendary TV filmmaker. Norman Lear and Norman had purchased an original print of the declaration of independence. I know, I know as millionaires do or billionaires do um, and decided he didn't want it sitting in an archive. He wanted it to tour around the country and inspire people to vote. Steve and I were the first two poets, a part, a part of that tour. So, wow. So Norman also is Maya Angelou's is the, sorry, Norman has two twin daughters and their godmother is Maya Angelou. So Norman was no going way. to the party. Yeah. So Norman was going to Maya's uh, 75th party that Oprah throws for her every five years. And he brought Steve Connell and myself as his gift of poetry to Maya Angelou. <laughs> so you can imagine the pressure of being that we are literally her birthday gift of poetry. Like if she unwraps it and it's like, oh, yeah, a toaster, like we're dead, you know? <laughs> so the fact that she unwrapped us and literally was tear felt and we rocked as the gift of poetry, one of the most iconic uh, American poets, you know, ever was just, it was, it was a dream come true. So, and that how was you, How side. are you not pissing in your pants? <sighs> I don't know, man. I just, I, you know, like I've all, I get, maybe it's that entrepreneur, it's that hustler in me, but I've always felt like there's always a little bit of pee, you know what I mean? There's a, there's a couple of drips, you know what I mean? Like, it's like the urinary tract ain't as strong in those moments as it normally is, but it's, I can't. Not, it's not a soak, I can't. you know what I mean? It's not a soak. And I think part of that is just because I'm, my, my sights are always set on big goals. 
So, and I stay present in the moment of achieving them. So I don't focus on them. Oh my God, what happens and what happens if, and what I'm just like, listen, this is what's in front of you. You said you wanted to go after a, a mountain of a goal. You're here, you're on the mountain. Don't focus on anything else except getting to the top of the mountain. And so when I was in that moment, I was like, we're going to rock it. We're gonna... I'll tell you another quick story about that. My, and this is, this is really good for your audience to know also as a lesson, <laughs> you know, the brilliance of masters. So in, in keeping in line with the canary and, and a yellow joke, Steve and I, being the perfectionists that we are and loving to create original work, we spent the week, we would travel there the week, uh, the few days before, and we spent maybe three or four days in a hotel, hold up, getting ready for the show. And we were like, we're going to write an amazing set for Maya Angelou and Oprah. And we did this whole set, and it just, we worked on it night and day. We were deliriously tired by the end of it. And Norman, at the begin, had, beginning, had said, I think that you should do your poem, When I Grow Up, Seku. Your poem, I'm an American, Steve. And then your group poem, I felt that spit. That would be what I suggest. We were like, cool, Norman, we got this. <laughs> and yeah. we went and wrote this whole set. And it was, I mean, it was the most subpar thing ever. But we we presented it to Norman like, this is what we came up with. And he was like, oh, wow, uh... wow, some powerful stuff. That's great. So I think you should do, <laughs> when I grow up, <laughs> I am an American, and I felt that spit. We were like, all right, Norman, the master, we're going to go with you. And of course, that's what ended up killing. And so I always, I always like make sure that I encourage audiences, like know yourself, know when you're being too precious with something, know when you need to listen to one of your mentors. Uh, you know, there's a big part of everything that you're hearing from me that's like, in the face of everybody telling you something, do you. But there's a flip side to that. Like people do them to their own detriment sometimes because you can't hear anybody. You can't take advice. You can't take leadership or guidance. So at a certain point, like know your strengths, know your weaknesses, trust your gut. Even when your gut is saying you're not you didn't kill this and you need to you need to figure out a way to fix this and make it better so that you can maintain your standards of excellence. And that was one of those opportunities for us. So I think just to answer your question quickly, like. That part of that was why we weren't necessarily pissing in our pants. We had gone through that. Then we we took Norman's advice and we walked confidently on stage knowing we were performing our three most signature poems that had rocked audiences around the world. And we were like, we're going to rock Maya. So when all of a sudden we were like, oh, shit, Maya's hating it. I crumbled for a minute, but I kept going. I kept dancing. I kept figuring it out. And then I realized, oh, that was my perception. I was wrong. I was perceiving my audience in a way that wasn't accurate. That was my limiting voice in my head. I'm rocking Maya Angelou. Go kill this shit. And that's how we ended You know it. what's amazing with somebody like Norman? I, my best friend growing up was on the, a TV show that he did called One Day at a Time. And uh, I never got a chance to meet him, but my friends always talked lovingly about him. And we, we had such conversations that were interesting. You remember his show, All in the Family? Of course. So when you think about that show, right, he was able to take this like, you know, white bigoted guy, Archie Bunker, and make all of the other white bigoted Archie Bunkers of the world relate and hear it. But at the same time, he was teaching them. And if you want to know who Norman Lear is as a person, just listen to that story that you just told. Right. And look at the, look at the, look at the, look at who he was with. So there's no arguing what his intent was because of who he was. So I love that. You know, speaking of, uh, you, you talked about like Grammys a second ago, you know, when we think of like, you know, winning the Grammy, 
Well, you did one of those. You're in that category, too. You know, we think of household names, you know, music stars, the Rihanna's and the Jay-Z's of the world. But you're putting spoken word on the map in 2020. You made Grammy history by becoming the first contemporary poet to be nominated for the best spoken word album in 12 years after Maya Angelou. What did that feel like in your body when you got that hit? Another, you know, right up there with the Maya Oprah moment, it was another Mama I Made It moment. So, so the one correction I'll give is it really, truly, it's actually in 30 years. 30 years. So we had to we had to be careful with our language when I was doing the Grammy campaign um, because we wanted to make sure we didn't break any solicitation rules. And Maya Angelou, some people might consider her a spoken word poet. She's not right. She doesn't she didn't win for a spoken word album. She won for uh, narrating her book of poetry, just like all audio. Uh, So it's like a technicality there. Right. And and that's and it's a and it's a technicality category, the best spoken word album, because we share the category with audio books, which means. Prior to the 80s, poets won that category. Spoken word poets won best spoken word album, as the world would expect. Then audiobooks became a became a phenomenon, shared the category. Suddenly, poets were competing with presidents and, and, and giant publishers and celebrities and these huge brands, and we didn't stand a chance. So for 30 years, no spoken word poet has won our own category, which I felt was a terrible shame. And so as I, just like with the business world, when I started to say, okay, I need to kick open another door for poets, what's that door going to be? I started looking at the music world and I was like, we need to be able to own our category and believe this is possible. And I want poets to know that's possible. So again, I sort of put another impossible goal in front of me and decided and decided to go for it. And I, I remember this moment when I was in the middle of the campaign, nobody, everybody was looking at me like I was crazy, right? They're like, you're going to go for a grant. Like what? You don't have a record label behind you. This is all your, your campaign money, your marketing money, your time. Like there's no giant publisher or agent or anything behind you. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm doing this just like I've done everything else in my career. I'm building it. You know, the hammer and the nail is in my hand. And and my mom said something, you know, the string theory, which was the group that I did the album with, a 50-person neoclassical uh, symphony orchestra out of Berlin and Sweden, an amazing, amazing group of musicians, an amazing collaborator. Even they were like, wow, that sounds amazing. You're going to go after a Grammy. Are you sure? <laughs> you know, and even my mom at one moment was like, that's amazing. But are you sure? Are you and then when I. But when I talked, but when my response to her, you know, when I said, yeah, here's what I'm going to do. And I know it's impossible. And she looked at me and she said, well, you know, you've never really been, you know, discouraged or dissuaded by chasing the impossible. So I don't see why you would start now. And when she said that it was such a confirmation and the synergy of my past with her and everything she instilled in me and her handing that baton and that torch to say, continue. And so I did. And um, I I gave it everything that I had. um, And I looked up and we got the nomination. And I, I knew I ultimately wasn't really, really going for the win because, look, again, know thyself, know what's realistic, know when you're being, you know, delusional, but but with a, with with possibility versus when you're just being crazy. Right. And I knew that the mother load of all mother load books had come out that year. So, of course, we got beat out by a small local little known act named Michelle Obama. <laughs> Not sure if you've heard of her. There was we weren't beating. We, Becoming was like the biggest book ever. There was no way we were beating that. Right. But here's the thing. And I and again, I just. I encourage you all that are listening to just. 
pay attention to how it must have felt in this moment to, to, to watch the reversal happen. I was very grateful. I had just become a voting member for the Grammys. Um, I had been an associate member before, um, but I that year I was I was moved up to a voting member. So I got to vote for my album for the first time. And I was glad that I voted on the last day of voting. And I didn't, you know, I just did that because I was busy campaigning. I was like, oh, I got to make sure I vote. But what happened was I knew I was going to be going up against Becoming and a few other celebrities. I ended up looking at that list of the celebrities that had submitted. And there were, the, the, you know, there were maybe 90 submissions or something. And about 30 or 40 of, the, 40 of them were these massive brands. Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, Stephen Colbert, like all of these huge, huge brands, right? And so I suddenly freaked out. And I was like, oh, I made a mistake. I didn't realize this was my competition. I'll never get this. And if I had thought that or had that moment earlier, I probably would have taken myself out of the game myself. But because it was the last day of voting, it was like, I've done all the work. Oh, well, I guess I did all the work for nothing, but there's nothing I can do now. So then fast forward three weeks later, when I got the nomination, it was like, not only did I get the nomination, I just beat out Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, Stephen Colbert. Like I beat out these massive brands, little old me, the engine that could took them out. And so that was incredibly gratifying and fortifying that then made me um, go after the win. But the greatest thing about that, the same way that I was talking about the personal versus the professional side of things, for me, the Grammy, it wasn't life-changing for me. I mean, I, you know, part of partially because just like with everything else, like I got hit by COVID right after, not personally hit sick, but the world got hit by COVID right after I got my nomination. So all hopes of like touring and all that kind of stuff dropped off. So it, it necessarily hasn't changed my personal life yet. But the goal was to fulfill my mission for my life and my purpose, which is to help to create and pioneer a more commercially viable industry for the art of spoken word, for young poets to be able to tell their parents, I want to be a spoken word poet when I grow up. And that parent hears possibility. They don't hear, you know, you want to be homeless. They hear, oh, I know where this can go. And so the Grammys was a huge door knocked open for that. So many poets hitting me up saying, Oh my God, I didn't think this was possible. Like, how, how did you do that? Thank you for letting me know this is even attainable. And now, not just as a result of me, I don't take full credit for it, but there is a movement happening right now where all of these other poets are jumping on board going, we're going to take back our category and we're going to start to split these split the category from audiobooks. And so the access, creating a model that other poets can follow and a possibility that they can believe in, that's so, so, so much a part of my mission. So that was the biggest life-changing aspect of it for me. You know, if if I would have whispered in your ear uh, when you were substitute teaching back in LA and I would have said, hey, you know, I just want to, you know, I've been to the future <laughs> and uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that you're going to get nominated for a Grammy, but it, it's not going to be for hip hop, but you're going to get nominated for a Grammy. And uh, you're going to, you're going to perform for the first black president. And uh, you're going to have the most famous poet in the world there. And you're also going to have the most famous and successful woman in the world there. And they're going to be screaming for you. What would you have said? <laughs> what do I do tomorrow to make that happen? And what's interesting is you actually did that. You didn't know that you were doing that, but that was the path that you were on because you trusted your heart. And I think that's what you're trying to do 
with stage might. Tell me a little bit about what that is. Oh uh, yeah. Stage might. So, so the one, one part of this story uh, that we, we skipped over a little bit is right after I started to make strides in the business world with my traditional spoken word poetry, that's what led to me creating the category of speaking that I, that I created. It's called poetic voice and poetic voice is a seamless fusion of inspirational speaking and spoken word poetry. So poetic voice is the space that I've been living in for the past 10 years easily, especially almost exclusively in the past 10 years, really building this brand to be able to go and show uh, organizations, stages, bookers that spoken word, a spoken word based uh, keynote speech can hold an audience, not for the three minutes that you thought was max, but for 30 minutes, 45, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, and still leave them wanting more because it will it won't just be this prose type experience where it's like, here's my PowerPoint slide and I'm going to talk about these five steps, but it's going to feel like Hamilton meets Ted, right? It's going to feel like this. I'm in storytelling right now, but wait, oh crap. Now he's rhyming. Now, wait, now, oh shoot, this is business content. Let me write this down. Oh, this feels like a stand-up comedy act. Wait, why am I crying? This is an emotional story. And it constantly keeps the audience from, prevents them from getting ahead of me. And it keeps them on their toes, changing modalities, right? And so it's using all of these different art forms, primarily spoken word, but not for the sake of an entertainment performance, but for the sake of delivering public speaking and business content. And I realized that that was my unique approach to public speaking. People would always ask, how do you do that? And I used to say, well, I don't know. It's just my, it's just what I was born with. You know, it's my genius. Um, but as I began to dissect and codify that process, I realized no, there's, you know, I always say like, we, we talk about this is my magic, but there's a point at which the magic ends and the mastery begins. And, and my mastery was that I had never been trained as a public speaker, even though I had a successful career as a public speaker, I was trained as a performer, but I used that performance training and I brought it into a different industry. And I thought, well, that's unique and that's teachable. And that's something that people don't get when they go to a traditional speaker training program, because I didn't want to be a speaker trainer. Rob. I honestly was like, that's not what I want to do. But when I realized I'm not answering the question, how do you do that effectively, which means I'm not serving my community fully. I'm, I'm, show, I'm giving them inspiration, but I'm not showing them how to be inspiring to their community. So there's another step that's missing. And so I began to dissect my process and I created a speaker inspiration training uh, system called Stage Might, as in stage fright to stage might. And it really is rock star secrets for public speakers. It's basically saying if you want to stand out in your communication, and this is not just speak to get paid, like there's a lot of great speak to get paid, you know, come learn how to be a public speaker and make $10,000 a speech, right? There's a lot of great programs for that. I didn't just want to empower people who wanted to become public speakers. I wanted to empower people who wanted to become a better dentist or a better teacher or someone who wanted to rock a wedding speech, someone who wanted to feel empowered at the PTA meeting when they felt like they were dealing with all these judgmental parents and they had to stand up and present something. I wanted people to have regular average people to have access to a level of inspiration and dynamic communication power that they never thought was possible for them. And I realized that one way to do that is to give them the secrets of performers. How do rock star performers do what they do to you? And how can you take those secrets and apply them to your dentistry or being a lawyer or the wedding speech? And that's where it began to be sort of like, you know, you want to create infectious content, Rob? 
Don't just learn from speakers. Learn how a songwriter writes a song in a way that gets stuck in your head for a year and becomes your own personal anthem. What if you could do that with the team that you lead at work? You want to become more authentic in your in your body and stop feeling like there's an alien in your body every time that you get up to public speak and you start getting nervous and your leg is twitching and you're sweating and you don't feel authentically you? Well, learn how an actor plays a role. What is an act, what does Jamie Foxx do to study Ray Charles to the, or, or Meryl Streep study Margaret Thatcher to the point where they, they become that person? And halfway through the film, you forget you're looking at the actor. How do they study that person? How can you, how can onstage you study offstage you to bring the power and charisma and confidence of offstage you on stage so that you give a Grammy uh, Oscar winning performance of yourself. So it's really looking at dance and improv and, and poetry and theater and all of that in this comprehensive program to make you mighty in your communication. And most importantly, to make you mightier than your mistakes so that you stop believing that every time uh, that you make a mistake, you're undermining your competence or your under uh, your competency, you're undermining your authority to stop believing that perfection is your goal instead of resilience and recovery. And that's a theme that we're all living in this past season is resilience and recovery. And I want people to feel like they are mightier than their mistakes. That was the whole principle behind the Listen, state. I need my cane right now and I'm going to start screaming. I will spit. <laughs> I will spit right now. <laughs> Man. You got that. You got that thing nailed. Um, so what does it look like in terms of the actual program? Is it modules? Is it uh, video calls? Is it personal coaching? How do you do it? Yeah, uh, great question. So the the uh, well, put it this way, the digital version, the you know, the most flexible version is uh, the online course. And that's what okay. we started with. Um, I wanted to give people a way to have this access whenever they wanted. So we have an online course. It's it's uh, five modules, five weeks, um, very interactive, deep dive into um, multiple art forms and showing you how they uh, apply to whatever type of speaking you're doing. It's got great guest interviews. I really wanted to make sure I brought in guests that live at that same kind of intersection that I do. So they aren't just an expert in, say, uh, NLP but they're an expert in NLP and uh, sales and voiceover. So there's, so they, people that really understand the synergy of bringing something from one industry to another in a way that can help you. And so you've got the guest interviews, you've got uh, two lessons inside of each course. And, you know, it's everything from rockstar rituals, how to, how to be mighty before you even touch the stage by, by learning how performers, what do, what do performers do backstage that speakers don't do? Dancers and performers, they, they, they're warming up their instruments and accessing their power in a completely different way. So I'm teaching those kinds of secrets and rituals to how to memorize content uh, masterfully and quickly, to how to be authentic in yourself, to how to be masterful on a small stage. And so that's one of the courses is helping you to, to, to achieve ma maximum effect on little many stages. So you got that uh, that online course, right, that gives you access, lifetime access, study at Mobile five courses, five weeks. And then, of course, if you want to raise uh, the level of investment and, and in yourself, then you can work one on one with me. There's a VIP training aspect um, that has been really successful with uh, executives and, and, and leaders who are possibly you know, someone working at a company or is president of their own company and they've been able to be in the spotlight. But now all of a sudden they're going public 
and they need to uh, speak, they need to wow investors, or they're an executive that just got a promotion and the boss wants them to speak at the main conference, you know, or they have a TED talk coming up. I've gotten people their first standing ovations at their TED talks and their and their corporate uh, and or business events. So that's that one-on-one connection, working with your content and your and your delivery. And then there's also like you know group coaching situations where somebody brings me to their company and says, "We want you to teach our sales team how to deliver." technical data in powerful human stories. So teach us storytelling for business, you know, and I'll go train, uh, train folks that way. So lots of, lots of different, uh, different options and ways to engage. What about people hiring you saying, you know, Hey, look, I I don't want to go on stage, but, but I want my brands to have a voice and I need a story and much the same way that you did with Nike can brands hire you and say, look, I like, I know what I know what I'm trying to say. I know what our voice is, but I just can't get it out of me. I can't. I need somebody to extract that and make that work. Do you do that kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm and that's really sort of how I started, you know, creating these custom pieces and these custom you know, there there are pieces that I created. Like if we go back to Nike, there's a piece that I have that I created for that analyst meeting that I told you about at Nike. It became sort of part of the Nike archive um, where everyone sort of knew about this piece. And they were all like, oh, my God, that's why it started to get called in by brand and finance and so forth, because everyone realized this applies to all of us. And so it sort of became this this catchphrase um, inside of the company internally. And it's also, to be honest, it's a piece about how business relationship with consumers has changed in the digital age. They have the power. You don't get over it. It's sort of this swagger kind of piece. Over the years, it has stayed my most used, most popular piece of content in all of my speeches. All I did was change sidekick to BlackBerry, BlackBerry to iPhone. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the technology <laughs> references changed, but the principles were still are still the same and still just as powerful these days. So there are definitely pieces where I'll go and create a manifesto for someone or I'll create something that's public or internal. I just did something for MasterCard where it was like, we wanted, we have a, a boring, dry security video that we want to do and we want you to bring it in and humanize it and make it fun. And so I helped them create a catchphrase and deliver this really humorous, fun piece. And now they're bringing me in to deliver that live to a lot more uh, folks in the, in the, in the uh, you know, company wide. And so I love when the pieces sort of go viral to, you know, forgive the, forgive the term now, but they go viral inside of the company and they become part of of the, uh, uh, you know, of the, the language and the voice of that company. So I do that kind of stuff all the time. In addition to my keynotes. Yeah. Yeah. I think about like Apple's campaign, you know, I I don't, I don't have it memorized, but you know, that, you know, you know, the one I'm talking about the here's to the dreamers, the crazy Mm -hmm. ones, you know, that Mm -hmm. like, I think about, you know, a brand like Apple. And when that came out, that was many years ago. I mean, that kind of content put them on the map. So, you know, people need help with getting their brand out there. And I find that a lot of entrepreneurs there, it's like, I know what I'm trying to say. I just, I don't have the words. I, I don't have the skill set to be able to do it. So I think that's good. All right, last question. Everybody has a different creative process that they go through. For me, I, whenever I'm writing anything, I don't care if it's a blog post or whatever, I got to do it in the morning. If I don't do it in the morning, like at the end of the day, like I'm just for shit. Like I, I don't have that bandwidth. Right. What have you found works best for you? And this question I'm going to be asking you now, because you got a one-year-old, uh, unless, unless you got Oprah money, you don't have 15 <laughs> nannies running around your house right. taking care of your baby. Right. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So what does that look like for you in real life to be able to find 
that space to create and to let it flow? Like walk me through your process. Is it, are you listening to music? Are you doing it in the morning? Are you doing it on the computer? Are you writing with a pencil? Are you doing it in the notebook? Paint that picture for me. So one of the things I've been working on perpetually, and I have to use working on in air quotes, is my book. I've been working on a book about the power of inspiration and, the, and how to harness inspiration, how to access inspiration, be inspired, but also be inspiring and teach people how to, how to do that. And it's been a challenge because, you know, like it'd be easier if I was a chef or a construction worker working on a book. I'd, I'd, have, I'd work in one modality in the day and then I'd come home and I'd write. But I'm a writer. And that's how I run my company. Everything I do is writing. So by the time I'm done running the company writing, the last thing I do, I feel like doing is looking at font at all, you know? Um, So it's been a challenge. Even just people are like, why is it taking you so long to write your book? That's what you do. And it's because that's what I do. So I've had to learn how I, I have to constantly learn how to hack myself. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is how to make sure that you are hacking your ability to be inspiring so that you can access it on command. When I first started off, I I was just, you know, I was writing because I wanted to write. So if I was in love, I'd write a love poem and I'd go perform that that night at at, at the poetry lounge in LA or something. And if I was mad at my my mom, I'd write a mad at my mom poem or something, you know? Um, Then all of a sudden, my art became my business. My art became my commodity. And I had to access it in a different way. Now it's like, yo, you don't have time to sit and wait for it. You got to deliver this diabetes cloud computing cybersecurity poem by Friday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Get creative. Go. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I had to learn now. I couldn't sit around and wait for it. I had to learn how to go crowbar inspiration out of the world. Right. And so that and there's no one way to do that. You know, so one, so a lot of what I talk about in my book is to just pay attention. The first thing to do is to pay attention to how you are inspired. To be inspiring, one of the things you have to do is to be inspired. And you want to make sure that you're paying attention to that really inspired me. And you're jotting that down and you're making a mental note of what were the circumstances that allowed that to happen? Because you need to be able to recreate that, you know? So I start noticing that, say, for example, I'm very conscious of things like energy and sound and light, um, space, right? There are, there are certain phases of my writing that I know I need to walk because oh, I need to walk or drive. I tell my wife all the time, yo, I'm going off for a riding walk or a riding drive because there's something about movement that gets me moving, that gets the ideas moving. I remember asking my dad years ago, why is it that I can freestyle rap whenever I'm driving? And he was like, think about how many things your brain is doing when you're driving. You're not in, in a sense of stasis. You're constantly looking, checking mirrors and checking all these senses and it's life or death. So your synapses are firing and that's cracking open the door for your creativity, right? So pay attention to those types of things. There are other situations where I go, I need to be in stillness. I need to be in darkness. I need to be in a well-lit environment. I need to be surrounded by energy. Like if I'm writing about youthfulness and playfulness, maybe I'll go to a park or something. You know, careful, don't be the creepy dudes in a park. But yeah, you're right. You don't <laughs> be that guy. Right, exactly. But keep keep you 200 but, feet away. Exactly. <laughs> but just pay attention to the stimuli that you need to crowbar what it is that's coming out, right? Pay attention to uh, not only light and sound, but pay attention to like even distractions. There are sometimes when I find myself going, I want to go and sit in the lobby of the hotel if I'm in a writing retreat, as opposed to sitting in my room quietly, because I need the 
the news playing. Like I was recently working on my book and the Olympics was on, right? And I'm sitting back writing about powerful stories of people who accomplished amazing things. And all of a sudden, you know, Simone Biles and everybody's on the Olympics and I'm going, oh, I need to pause. This is inspiration saying, hey, hey, look at me. I'm here. I'm here for you. And I need to make sure that I'm paying attention to that. So I think that it's just making sure that you are capturing and, and capitalizing on how it is that you are inspired so that you learn how to access that quickly. And that's going to be one of the ways that you can always uh, uh, stimulate yourself and pull it out quickly, you know? That's interesting. One of the things that I noticed, I, I did four months living in Italy and I looked back, my wife had asked me a question on something. She said, you wrote something in the post on Facebook when you were living in Italy that was really profound. Can you find it? So I did, I found it. And then I started looking through that period and I was like, holy shit, I'm looking at my writing and it's like, I'm, I'm looking, you know, as I sit here, you know, with my Negroni looking at the terracotta roofs with the apricot sunlight coming. I was like, who the <laughs> fuck is that guy? You know what I mean? Like it was completely different because the environment was changing me. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like energetically, chemically different. Yeah. And then I looked at where I am. So one of the, one of the reasons uh, that I'm moving back there is because I feel different when I'm there. Yeah. So I love all that. Well, man, I could talk to you for hours. I know we're over our time here. Um, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? I, you know, I guess my, my biggest suggestion, especially right now in this world that we're living in, don't diminish yourself. Don't diminish your possibilities right now because you feel more distant, you know, recognize your power to close that distance. One of the things people always ask me is how do you control nervousness um, when you're on stage? And I always tell people like, start with purpose. You know, the higher your purpose, the, the less you're nervous, because if you recognize that someone came to hear you and you don't know who they are and you don't know what their situation is, but someone's business or family or marriage or life or, or, or mental health might be dependent upon what it is that you have to say and how it is that you deliver it. And you might be speaking to a thousand person audience, but don't go into it like you're speaking to a thousand people. Go into it like you're speaking to one person and you may not know who they are, but they're out there. Right. There was one time that I did a high school event for uh, for at risk youth folks that are sort of like, this is the last school you'll go to before you're, you know, you put into the system. And I was talking to them. I was doing, doing my, my poem, the awesome anthem and inspiring them. And I was saying, look, you have, you never know why it is that you come. So sometimes you just have to show up and give your all and, and live into your purpose and be okay with that. And afterwards, you know, the audience was okay. The kids were, you know, the, the, the reception was medium energy, but I was fine with that. And afterwards people were lining up and they were getting autographs and pictures and so forth. And there was this, this little girl, sitting in the corner, just waiting. And I kept looking at her like, she's not really in line. What does she want? And after everyone left, she came up to me and she just started to tell me her story and everything that had happened to her in her life. And she started to pour me. She started asking me all these questions that I just sat with her for an hour after and my car was waiting. And the people were like, we need to get out of here. And I was like, hold on. And after I finished, you know, she, she stood up, she quietly thanked me. She gave me a hug and she said, I was the reason why you were here today. Whoa. And I just, those are the, that happens to me all the time. And it can happen to you all the time when you just recognize that that's your purpose. Don't go into it. Like I got to get the investor. I got to get the, I got to kill the audience. This is all make or break me. Someone is listening for your voice. So, so always be purposeful in that. Always be mighty in how it is that you're expressing yourself. Always remember your power to be inspiring. And, you know, let me know if I can help. 
<laughs> yeah, you, you never know what you what you may say or do that'll change somebody's life. Well, right. really interesting. Well, Seku, you're the first guy I know named Seku, so I feel like I just want to keep. <laughs> I just feel like I want to keep saying it. Seku, thank you so much for being on the show. We will link everything up in the show notes. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.